Welcome to the Geneva Center for Security Policy podcast. I'm Ashley Mueller. This week's episode explores some of the latest global issues affecting peace, security, and international cooperation. Climate change, technology, pandemics, and the economy are transnational global security issues. We speak with Vicente Paulo Yu III, Associate Fellow with the GCSP's Global Fellowship Initiative and an independent expert and consultant for various UN agencies and NGOs to hear his insights on international cooperation. And as we evaluate our crisis response to the coronavirus pandemic, we speak with Ms. Catherine Rompado Arifagic, a Special Assistant and Political Affairs Officer with the Office of the Rule of Law and security institutions within the Peace Operations Department of the United Nations. Vicente, among many things, you are also a founding partner of the Clean Energy Innovations Partnership and formerly served as the Deputy Executive Director at South Center, an intergovernmental policy research institution on developing countries. You are also associated with Third World Network and the United Nations Research Institute for Social Development. Thank you for joining us here today. My first question to you is, when it comes to the international security landscape today, what does cooperation beyond silos look like? We must have a good understanding of why are things in silos, right? Uh, and what are those silos that have an impact on the global security uh, situation? And here we define security broadly, so it's human security and it's not just military or political uh, security. What we are facing right now is a context in which we have multiple uh, challenges facing the global community. You have climate change, you have biodiversity loss, you have uh, unilateral trade protectionism, for example, you have population growth, you have global pandemics like the coronavirus, you have um, concerns about what would be the impact of technological change, you know, artificial intelligence, digitalization mean for us, for, for, you know, for human beings as workers, you know, all of those things. I think the word silos come in because the way that we had structured international governance arrangements over the past meant that you created an international organization for a particular topic. And by, I think, sheer institutional inertia in a way, uh, they tend to then focus on their own turf and very difficult and makes it and that makes it very difficult to do the cross linkages and I think what we are now seeing is that um, a lot of these issues biodiversity climate change pandemics technology the uh, global economy and the extent to which the global economy is very unstable right now shows us that you do need to connect all of those silos together because if you do not connect them, climate change breeds uh, conditions which can make it difficult for human security to be achieved in countries. You know, you have typhoon impacts, for example. You have uh, biodiversity deforestation causes people to move, those kinds of things. So we need to have that kind of cooperation uh, across institutions, uh, across issues, with the understanding that all of them are interconnected. They are all linked. And no one institution can do it. And you know, and I think um, what we now have in terms of cooperation beyond silos looking like is you have an attempt uh, since 2015 at least within the UN system uh, through the Sustainable Development Goals at 
trying to achieve this cooperation. The jury is still out on whether that has been happening well, but at least I think what we have to give credit to the global community for, to the UN system for, is that they have recognized the problem and are trying to do something about it. What is an unsuccessful example or a challenge facing international cooperation, specifically in regards to climate change? I think climate change is one of those uh, crux global issues where we have not seen international cooperation work well. We had the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change adopted in 1992. It entered into force in 1994. Then in 1997, you had the Kyoto Protocol, which entered into force only in 2008. And then you had the Paris Agreement, adopted in 2015, entered into force in 2016, and still has to be implemented beginning next year. Right? So, what has happened? Uh, what has happened is that under the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, developed countries were supposed to have gone reduced their emissions uh, back to 1990 levels by the year 2000. Under the Kyoto Protocol, developed countries were essentially supposed to have reduced their emissions to somewhere around 5 percent below 1990 levels by the year 2012. Under the Paris Agreement, um, we still have to see what that will mean. But also under the Kyoto Protocol, some developed countries were supposed to then also further reduce their emissions to somewhere like 18 percent below 1990 levels by the year 2020. This year, from 1994, to now, developed countries on average have reduced emissions to somewhere around 1% below 1990 levels. Which means that the extent to which we had hoped that that problem could be addressed was not met. Another big, I think, failure in a way or implementation gap is, in a way is this idea that under the uh, climate convention and under the Kyoto Protocol and even under the Paris Agreement now, you had this idea of international cooperation where developed countries were supposed to help developing countries uh, do more and do better in reducing their own emissions and in adapting to the impacts of climate change. And so the idea back from the mid-1990s up to now is that you would have funding and technology transfer being moved to developing countries so that developing countries instead of following the heavily emitting pathway of developed countries in the past we don't do that anymore right we we shift things and that's our contribution towards addressing this problem if you read reports coming out from the UN system about how much money has gone in it's fairly depressing because there has not been much money going in technology transfer has not happened as well because there are barriers. Uh, one, you have to buy technology, and if you don't have money, you cannot buy the technology. Second, you also have technology policy barriers in the form of, for example, intellectual property rights. Uh, meaning that you cannot reverse engineer the technology that you buy from the West, right? Because if you do that, if you reverse engineer that, you might get hit with a dispute case before the WTO because you violated the intellectual property rights agreement. You know? So all of these things, so it's a question of, I think, in, you have failures in international cooperation in the climate change area, largely because there was not much political will among governments to do things, but also because you have systemic design flaws in a way, 
where it's the, the international system is not necessarily coherent with itself when it comes to shaping the international regimes. You know, so you have climate change treaty that says you all have to work together, but then you have a trade treaty that says actually you can't or you should not, but instead you don't do technology transfer, but instead you buy it from us. Uh, and if you want to copy it, you cannot because that violates my corporation's rights. You know, so things like this um, have to be looked at in a systemic way. And so far, we haven't been very good at doing that. So on the other side, now I'm going to ask you, what is a successful example of cooperation beyond silos? And what opportunities are there for international cooperation? What has worked well, you know, an example of international cooperation is the ozone layer. Remember that back in the 80s and in the 90s, that's a big thing, right? Big hole in the ozone layer, you know. So if you're Australian, you were advised to sleep slap slop, right? Uh, slip on uh, long sleeve shirts, uh, slap on hat, and slop on the sun cream. Slip slap slop. You had the, uh, uh, I think it was the 1987 uh, Vienna Convention in the ozone layer. And now the ozone layer is closing. And I think that's a prime example of international cooperation. How did that work? You had governments looking at the science, understanding what the problem was, what was causing it. Uh, you had economic instruments that were in place. You had a technical assistance fund that was actually being funded, which then allowed the developing countries to shift away from using uh, equipment that, was, that were emitting these ozone-depleting substances at the same time as developed countries were shifting away from the use of these ozone-depleting substances as well. So I think there are lessons that could be learned from that kind of international cooperation. I think some of those lessons could be applied when we talk about the SDGs and how the SDGs are supposed to be met in the next 10 years, right? Because they're supposed to be until 2030. I think there are um, ways in which the UN system is trying to do that. You have the high-level political forum, you've got what they call their partnership dialogues. Uh, you've got working groups set up. Uh, you've got uh, expert groups looking at targets and indicators and all of these things. But I think the thing that really needs to be focused on is looking at the extent to which real funding and real technology transfer take place towards developing countries. And that's because of two things. One, most developed countries have achieved, for lack of a better term, development, which means that the challenge for most developed countries is not to expand their economies, but to reallocate more equitably the resources that are within that economy, which poses a different set of challenges compared to other to developing countries, where the challenge for most developing countries is that you have a growing population, which means that you have to have an economy that is growing because uh, you need to make sure that that economy provides jobs for the young people who are entering that labor force. Because if you don't provide jobs for the young people that are entering that labor force, you will have a lot of unemployed young males and unemployed young females out there on the streets, which breeds a lot of political insecurity and economic insecurity, which then translates into a, a difficult situation for, that part, for, for those countries. So the, the challenges are different for different types of countries, and I think that's where 
Uh, that's why I think um, having some kind of one-size perspective about international cooperation, how you do it, um, would not make sense. And I think that's where you know, the, the UN is looking at when it comes to the implementation of the SDGs. So the crucial thing there, uh, and the second point is the crucial thing there really is this flow of resources to developing countries, particularly as these challenges mount, because um, more and more these challenges will come. And uh, if developing countries are not supported and assisted in dealing with these challenges at the national level, those challenges could actually become exacerbated and amplify the impacts of these global challenges also on developed countries. So international cooperation has to be the key. If you don't do that, then um, it will be each country for itself. And, and uh, then that, uh, and then the concept of international security goes away because you will not have security. You'll have insecurity in the end. Thank you, Vicente, for joining us. Ms. Catherine Rompado-Arifagich is the Special Assistant and Political Affairs Officer with the Office of the Rule of Law and Security Institutions for the United Nations Peace Operations Department. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you for joining us today to discuss crisis preparedness. Why is it important and what does a 360-degree perspective on crisis management look like? Oh, crisis, uh, you know, perhaps we should start first, uh, you know, on crisis management. I see it, uh, you know, a three type of definitions of crisis management is, uh, you know, once you are, you know, in a crisis, what is it that you do? How do we also, you know, prepare our, you know, our leaders, you know, to be really adapted, uh, you know, to face, uh, you know, a crisis? Uh, what is more important and more related to my own experience is to have a holistic approach, uh, you know, to the crisis management and to the crisis uh, you know, itself, uh, always with the view of leaving no one behind. So always, you know, like thinking about the most vulnerable, you know, population that you may not think, you know, at first, once you are, you know, in a crisis. And so therefore, you know, to, um, to involve as many, many, you know, stakeholders. Uh, also, you know, look at, the, you know, a gender, you know, diverse also, you know, um, because they, you know, like gender, diversity makes you feel also and think also you know differently i'm a woman but you know so so my male colleagues you know come with uh, you know various you know angles on how you know they look at the crisis the second uh, definition i have about crisis management is more about the level of preparedness so we're looking at contingency planning what is it that you do that you really you know that you think that you are all prepared and then maybe like the third approach is um, also looking at crisis management, but in the future. And that's exactly what we are actually brainstorming right now. Uh, are we really ready? And the whole th aspect of it is always, you know, to ask, you know, the question, you know, to ourselves, are we ready enough to prepare for the unforeseen? So there have been like some very interesting, you know, debates, which add to the complexity of crisis management is, uh, you know, the unforeseen. And the unforeseen we've been discussing this morning was about artificial intelligence, which I find extremely, you know, fascinating, uh, especially in the, you know, crisis management I have seen, uh, it was more related to insecurity, uh, rebellion, natural catastrophes. But we, do we really then, you know, think also about artificial intelligence work settings, you know, at the United Nations or for an international, you know, NGO? 
such as the one that I have worked before, you know, with Médecins Sans Frontières. Do you think that um, the skill set of a, um, a leader in charge of a crisis response team or strategic risk management, will that skill set change? And, and if so, what are the skill sets now and what should they be in the future? You see, before, and I would go back to my very, very first crisis. I was just like fresh from university and I was thrown, as I would call it like that, you know, like from, uh, you know, my, uh, my organization at that time, going into, uh, you know, the Rwandese, you know, genocide. So are we really, you know, ever ready to cope with such, uh, a, first of all, you know, human tragedy? So, you know, like at first you are new to the, you know, to, to the really a crisis environment, uh, you know, you learn, you you know, as you actually, you know, you do it, right? So you constitute yourself, your own portfolio of various instincts, you know, that you have. But as more as I evolved in, you know, in crisis management, you know, as I also grew a little bit, you know, older, crisis in leadership skills, you know, really is first of all, is to more like as a leader, is first to, uh, to have your own self, you know, awareness. What is it, the kind of a skills that you have to develop yourselves in order you know, to deliver uh, during that particular time? So first, like from the self-awareness, you also need then to deal with a team. And then I always think that, you know, it is not about the fact of having a crisis and deal with your team and then, oh, yes, but, you know, what is your strength and what is your weaknesses? So there's a lot of things, on, you know, on prevention and uh, knowing actually the, uh, you know, your team skills and, your, you know, the, the team's, you know, skill set. So that I exactly, you know, know, uh, for example, like whether you can also adopt, you know, a certain leadership styles. In non-crisis emergencies, you adopt more of a consultative, you know, type of leadership. You consult with people, uh, you know, so you get to know them, but vice versa. They also, you know, know what are actually, you know, my strengths, but also, you know, my weaknesses. And, and so that then when something, you know, arrives, uh, you know, like in, if they see that I'm more like authoritative, not saying, you know, like that in a very, uh, you know, negative term, but sometimes, in, you know, when you are in a crisis, you know, situation, you have no time for consultative process to to take place. So you have to take immediate uh, what from your gut's instincts, uh, you know, what you think, you know, is the best, you know, situation. And so there is a generally a more acceptance from your team members, even if this, the decision you take is not very popular. But then with some, uh, as I would say, you know, get to know and, you know, the team spirit and the team building is essentially, you know, very important. So once you have the time and people think that sometimes, you know, like team building is just a waste of time. It is not. It's, it's actually uh, the, the time that you invest in actually to, to spend it in a, in a more efficient way, you know, in the future. So for the, 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 the skills that you really need to have that, is like to really first work on, you know, the investment, you know, of you vis-a-vis -vis your team, but your team also vis-a-vis -vis yourself, um, in order, you know, to better be ready and to understand each other, you know, like better in, you know, in team, uh, you know, spirits, uh, in case sometimes, you know, very difficult situations and difficult, uh, you know, decisions need to be taken. 
So self-awareness, trusting your team, investing in your team, and uh, also making decisions and believing in your gut. I think that those can be very uh, essential, even moving forward to crisis 2030, even though we are facing the threat of AI, to be able to still have to rely on human skills to be able to respond to a crisis management. It's not only about, you know, like dealing with the situation, but it's really, you know, to deal with all the stakeholders. And when I also refer, you know, to leaving no one behind, you have indeed, you know, the victim, but behind the victim, there's a whole world also, meaning, you know, their relatives, their friends, their close friends. So, you know, you need to manage all this beyond the individual and the human being. You also have then, you know, the institution. The institution also has its own, you know, organizational, you know, culture. So you've got to, you know, to be able, you know, to understand how your organization, you know, is functioning. The organization can be also highly, you know, political. So any decision that you actually would take, you know, with your own instinct, somehow also has a political impact. And I think that all this goes back to your first, you know, your questions, what is the leader, you know, of tomorrow? You know, he needs really to be, can not only be self-aware of their own, uh, you know, skills, but also, uh, you know, to be able, you know, to, to, to measure and evaluate the impact of your decision, because your, your decision may turn out, you know, being a, a major political blast you know, in the end. So uh, that's uh, how I translate this as being really, you know, a holistic approach. I think it has to be an institutional approach, uh, you know, a family approach, an individual approach. And finally, in just a few words, can you, uh, what would be your advice to, to someone who is um, just starting out their career, like you mentioned earlier on in the interview? What would you be your advice on how to get prepared and what would you say to them? I think what is very important, I wouldn't be able maybe, you know, like to speak to you about crisis management if, if I haven't been in, in crisis before. I lived, you know, when I was very young and, and, and basically maybe it's the best time, uh, you know, to do that. Uh, not in my not in my age right now. So you know, as I said, uh, I, I lived through genocide in Rwanda, following which I was uh, in the, the middle of the war. You know, in Bosnia, lived through was a pure witness of the Srebrenica massacre. Was evacuated. I don't know how a number of times. Then, as a I would say, you know, as an individual, uh, you know, by by the United Nations, uh, was also a victim of malicious act. Uh, so I think that somehow myself and crisis management, I've, I also have adopted a certain holistic approach by having lived on the other side, I would say, of, uh, you know, the desk. Either you are, uh, you know, part of this uh, you know, crisis management team, but I've also have been, uh, in a way, but perhaps unfortunately, uh, you know, a victim, you know, of it too. But I think that, you know, having then going through all those type of experience allows you really, you know, to, to move on and perhaps to, to have a certain view of what is crisis management because you live through it that maybe you can actually do your job. So for to the young people who would want to do that, I think that, uh, you know, if you have the opportunity, whenever, uh, you know, don't listen to people saying, oh, no, no, this is too dangerous, you know, just don't go. It has to come from yourself. If you feel that, you know, no, I, you know, I can, I can go to those crisis, uh, you know, situation that really, you know, builds you up uh, and, and especially gives you, you know, a strong, I would say, uh, you know, tools for the future. Thank you, Catherine, for joining us. 
That's all we have now for today's episode. Thank you to Vicente Paolo III for joining us along with Miss Catherine Rampado Arifagic. Thank you and listen to us again next week to hear all the latest insights on international peace and security. And don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple iTunes, follow us on Spotify or on SoundCloud. Until next time, bye for now.